Hey, I'm Shannon Rice, the podcast producer here at C-SPAN. And this week, Lectures in History shares a class on the evolution of job skills and the rise of robots. Boston College economics professor Shandini Sankuran discusses the evolution of job skills and how computers and robots have changed labor markets and the types of jobs available. More on robots and the future of labor markets right after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So today we're going to be discussing skills for the future. And we're going to talk about the evolution of the types of skills uh, that are required for jobs over time and what we expect in the future. So how many of you have heard about uh, robots taking over all jobs? How many of you are actually afraid of that? Can I see a bigger show of hands? So how many of you have heard about it on the news all the time, that you're not going to have a job because robots are taking over? All of you? Really? Seriously? And how many of you um, are afraid of that, that it might actually happen? Okay, about three quarters of you, maybe, kind of, sort of, a little bit. Well, let's start off by just dispelling the myth. So this is a graph that shows us the employment level in the United States from January 1948 to March 2023. And we're taking a look at the thousands of persons employed. And when we take a look at the long-term picture of the employment level in the United States, you can see that the employment level in the United States has always been increasing. Yes, it's true our population has been increasing as well, but so have jobs, and so has the employment level in the United States. These shaded areas represent recessions, and as you are aware, during recessions, though, we do see an increase in the unemployment rate. So it's important for us to stay focused on what's going on in the long run, as opposed to what's going on during these short-term disruptions in our economy. So hopefully this helps you feel a little bit better about that, about you know, the fact that we have seen an increase in employment levels over time, and we do expect to continue to see an increase in these employment levels over time as well. When you think about all the changes that we have experienced in our economy from the 1950s to the 1960s, this is about when uh, computers were being started to be used in by businesses and in communications to the 1970s and the 1980s. So here's where people started relying on personal computers. 1990s, 2000s, where we started relying on the complex mobile phones that we have. And yet, you continue to see the number of people employed in our country increasing. So we should not think about computers and robots as substitutes for human skills. Rather, we should think about them as complements to human skills. And this graph does show us what has happened to the percent of employment in the manufacturing sector. As you can tell over here, we have seen a decrease in jobs in the manufacturing sector. When we take a look at the percent who are employed in the manufacturing sector between January 1970 to January 2012, 
You notice how about a quarter or slightly more than a quarter of our labor force was employed in the manufacturing sector in early 1970s. And we've seen a steep, significant decrease of employment in the manufacturing sector to about 10% or so by the end of this period in 2012. So while total employment has increased, there has been a shift in the types of jobs that people are working in our economy today. As you can tell right here, the manufacturing sector has been shrinking. And this is where a lot of those middle class jobs are. When you think about this, these jobs, many of these jobs are in the Midwest, Midwest, like Michigan, perhaps. And, you know, in the Midwest, we have seen a um, decrease in employment within the manufacturing sector. But we have seen increases in employment in other sectors. So in the next graph, I'm going to show you what has happened to employment in selected sectors. So I got this graph from the St. Louis Federal Reserve's website, or it's pretty easy to go out and graph out a lot of the data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, for example. And I picked some specific sectors in our economy, such as construction, leisure and hospitality, retail trade, professional and business services, financial activities, private education and health services, transportation and warehousing, and manufacturing. And in this graph, I went back all the way to 1940 uh, to today, the latest data that I could find in March 2023. So this top line over here shows us all employees in the manufacturing sector. So what was going on in the manufacturing sector was until up to about the mid-1940s or so, we saw an increase in employment in the manufacturing sector, after which it stayed pretty much stable, pretty much steady, and then we have started to see a drop or a decrease in the more recent decades. But we're seeing jobs in other sectors opening up. For example, this right here, this line right over here, you see a steady growth. You see a steady growth in jobs. Which sector is this? Yeah. Private education. Private and education health and health services. And there's a few others as well. So because I'm interested in the shift that has been happening more recently, I decided to just go break off this graph just so we could take a closer look at what's happening more recently and start this graph from January 1970 and it where we were ending in the previous graph in March of 2023. So, you know, you can continue here to see the trend of a decrease in employment in the manufacturing sector. We do see a deep decrease during recessions. The shaded areas in this graph are recessions, such as during the 2020 COVID recession. But these are short-term decreases, and eventually, you know, we go back up to our old levels. So when you look at these graphs, I want you to focus on what's been going on in the long run. 
what's been going on over, you know, a 10-year period, 20-year period, over decades, or even over a century. And as Billy mentioned over there, the um, private education and health service sector has been growing. What are some of the sectors that have been growing? Yes? The professional and business services. Professional and business services. Is that the second line on there? Um, professional and business services. Yes, I think so, yes. So this has been growing. And which one is this? Over here, because it seems like it's been growing as well. Right there, or has it been growing? Oh, well, maybe not. Yeah, I think there's been a long-term trend of growth on this one. So which one is this one? Yes? I think it's leisure and hospitality. Leisure and hospitality. But it's really interesting to take a look at what happened during the recession, during the COVID disruption, when a lot of businesses were shut down. We saw a really deep drop in the leisure and hospitality industry. But in the long term, we are seeing a long-term increase in that as well. And then there's some over here that are just pretty much steady, right? And, you know, maybe they've been growing by a little bit, but it's pretty much just, you know, pretty steady. So what are these sectors here? Yeah. It's like um, construction transportation and warehousing and financial activities construction transportation and warehousing financial activities so you know they seem pretty steady so it's important for us to understand that while some sectors such as the manufacturing sector has been shrinking and has been decreasing that does not mean that other sectors are they're not going to be jobs available in other sectors because you do see the shift that's taking place in our economy with the types of jobs that are available in our economy. So what's really going on in our economy over time, over the last few decades, has been structural changes in the labor markets. These really structural, long-term changes in our labor market. There's been different types of jobs um, that are being created. We're seeing growth in certain industries, but we're also seeing other industries shrinking. And these rapidly changing labor markets are due to two things, technological progress, and here's where, you know, you're all concerned about computers taking over jobs. But I want you to think about the types of jobs in the manufacturing sector. What are the types of jobs in that sector that are so easy for us to... Um, uh, to, to, for example, to have a computer take over or to program a computer to do? Yes? Like assembly or organizational tasks? Like assembly or organizational tasks. Why? Why do we think those kinds of jobs are easier for us to get computers to do? Yes? They're very, like, routine. So you can get a computer to, like, do that pretty easily. Perfect. They're routine. So, you know, jobs that are really routine, you can really easily program computers to do. Right? You give them specific rules. Do this, then you do that, then you do that, and you do that. 
and it's very easy for a computer to take over. Now, it's these types of jobs that can also be easily outsourced to cheaper wage countries because these are the types of jobs that we can provide specific rules to workers in these countries, and they can just follow those rules, very routine rules that they're going to be following, and, and complete the tasks. So given that these jobs are disappearing in our economy, the jobs in the past in our economy are going to be very different from the types of jobs in the future. And since these jobs are going to be different, we are going to require different skills, a different set of skills from humans in today's labor markets as well as in future labor markets. We're seeing some labor market polarization where the types of jobs that we find cannot be substituted by technology or computers or cannot be outsourced are either the very low-skilled jobs or the very high-skilled jobs. And many of these middle-skilled jobs have been automated or they've been sent abroad. And we expect this pattern to continue in the near future. What we need today is we need skills that complement technology or skills that computers cannot substitute for. So let's think about what computers can do and what computers cannot do. Have any of you tried out that robot vacuum cleaner? No. Yeah. What do you think about it? It's like convenient. Like it kind of just like goes around and does its thing. Like you kind of like, it's very hands off, which I think is like good if you're like busy. Yeah, it's really convenient. It's really fast. It's really helpful. If we're busy, we don't have to worry about it. So that's why I love it. I bought one last year. I was like, oh, I'm a busy person. I'm just going to, you know, I have no time to vacuum my house. I'm just going to turn on the robot vacuum cleaner. And it swallowed up my phone charger. I completely swallowed it up. It didn't even stop. It kept going and going and going till the end. Now let's think about <laughs> how a human would have been different. Once you see the phone charger, and sometimes you do accidentally vacuum by the phone charger, but once you see that something is happening with it and the vacuum cleaner is swallowing up your phone charger, you stop. You pull out the wire, right? And then you're pretty much, you know, you're going to try to find a solution to a situation that is unfamiliar to you and that you've never, um, that you've never been in before. That's something that robots cannot do. Because, you know, robots are being programmed based on information that's available. So let's think about, you know, what computers and robots can do and what they cannot do. So computers, as you mentioned, speed and accuracy. And I make mistakes sometimes when I'm tired. I mean, sometimes I'm sitting around, I can't even figure out what two times two is because I'm tired. But, you know, the computer can be going on all night and, you know, it's pretty accurate. It's going to continue to be accurate. But here's the weakness of the computer. They can only process information they are given and they make inferences based on commands. So there needs to be some kind of information that's been given to them. And then based on that information, it's going to follow a specific command or a specific rule on what to do next. So the computer executes rules. Computers are programmed with a series of rules that specify an action for each contingency. You have to tell a computer what to do, and there needs to be information available for the computer to be able to execute rules. 
Humans, on the other hand, we process information cognitively, then we decide what to do next. So our brains are capable of analyzing new and unfamiliar situations in a way that computers can't. Our brains are very flexible, and we're able to adapt to new situations. We can also draw upon our past experiences and then use past information and modify that information based on the situation that we're currently facing and come up with what might be the best solution for it. So a lot of the information that we are going to be talking about in the next few slides come from a paper titled Dancing with Robots, Human Skills for Computerized Work by Levy and Moraine. In their work, they discuss how the, um, the types of jobs and the types of skills that are required in our economy has changed over time. Let's go back to discussing computers, what computers can and cannot do. Computers can substitute for a human in performing a particular task when two conditions are satisfied. The first condition is information condition. The computer needs to have some pre-existing information. Computer needs to have the information necessary to carry out a task. The second condition is the processing condition. That information has to be processed in a specific set of rules for the computer to be able to execute the information. The rules could be deductive or inductive. The deductive ones are the ones that we're all familiar with because, you know, this is just rules-based logic where it's a logical step-by-step -step instruction that's programmed into a computer. This is pretty easy to computerize and to outsource. A good example, can you think about any examples where we're just programming the computer step-by-step -step to follow a specific set of rules? Like the way you program like thermostats in a house, maybe. So like as long as you want to keep like just the temperature above or below a certain threshold, that's like all. Yeah. So the computer, you're telling the computer I want it at 70 degrees. I want my home at 70 degrees. So if the temperature in the house is above 70 degrees, that's a very good example. Thank you. If the temperature in the house is above 70 degrees, then you know then the AC turns on. If it's below 70 degrees, the AC does not turn on. So, you know, that's where we're giving the computer specific rule by rule, um, step by step procedure to follow. But rules could also be inductive. Inductive rules would be something like pattern recognition, where the information processing is not, can't be articulated as a series of logical steps. With pattern recognition, we could use statistical modeling to look for patterns in data. And based on these patterns in data from the past, we could then try to foresee and we could then try to predict 
a solution for something that has not happened before. Right? When you think about AI and all that, infra- and oh, you know, writing the essays and so on that teachers are concerned about with, you know, plugging in a command, write an essay about the economics of education. I actually tried that out. I got a bunch of junk. Try it out one day. But what the computer does is it goes out, you know, and it digs out information that is already in the internet on the on the specific topic. And then it processes this information and it spits out something new based on what it thinks we want. It's not always correct. You know, that's a little bit harder to program, but that's something that where they're using, they're, tr- they're trying to use information from the past, processing that information and trying to come up with something brand new or what I like to call maybe new output perhaps. But when I tried it out, I found that it was not able to process those words into deeper meaning. It doesn't have that ability to be able to get to that point just yet. So that's something that computers are unable to do. And inductive rules are a little bit harder for us to program computers to do. Some of it we have figured out how to do, but there's still you know, a lot of it that computers, at least at this point or in the near future, might not be able to do. So here are some uniquely human brain strengths. Flexibility. We have the ability to process and to integrate many kinds of information to perform a complex task. We can solve problems for which there's no standard operating procedures. We can work with new information. We can make sense of it. So if you were to do the same thing, and I I asked you to write an essay on the economics of education, your output will be very different. Because you will go online, yes. You go take a look at the internet, and you're using it as a complement to your learning. And then you will process all that information in a deeper level. You would make sense of it, and you will communicate it effectively in a way that answers the prompt that I wanted. And don't forget, we have common sense. We know when to stop with when, you know, with um, when your vacuum cleaner is swallowing up the phone charger. So, you know, these are some things that computers do not have yet. And this is a table that I did also borrow from the work by Levin uh, Murnane. And they're talking about the varieties of computer information processing. There's rules-based logic, as we mentioned before, those deductive rules. And with deductive rules, it's pretty easy to program a computer to do, such as calculating basic income taxes. TurboTax, anybody use TurboTax? Yeah, it's pretty convenient. Just plug in the information, step one, your W-2, what was your income? Step two, your withholdings. Step three, did you have any savings? So it's a rule by rule thing. You had savings, yes. Enter in the information, no. Move on to the next step. So that will be an example of rules-based logic or issuing a boarding pass. In the past, you would have to go up to the airline attendant, line up, give your passport or your ID to the attendant, 
and the attendant would plug things into the computer and issue a boarding pass. Today, you can just get your credit card, stick it at one of those computers, and the computer matches your name to their system and issues a boarding pass. If the computer is unable to match your name to the system, then you'll get a message that says, go see the attendant. So these are the types of jobs that are very easy for us to program, those with these step-by-step deductive rules. And these are the types of jobs that are easily replaced by computers and will continue to be replaced by computers. And then as we move along here, increasingly difficult to program will be pattern recognition. We can't. It is possible for us to program computers up to a certain point with these inductive rules, such as speech recognition on Siri. Everybody has a slightly different accent. And, you know, let's say that we're asking Siri a question. Siri's programmed. We can program Siri to recognize these words that are pronounced slightly differently across different people. But... It is, it is not as easy as the deductive rules that we are programming to computers. Predicting a mortgage default rate. With predicting a mortgage default rate, if a bank would like to predict whether a customer would default on the mortgage, what they would do is they would get information about the customer, such as, you know, maybe the customer's credit score, how much money the customer owes people, the assets that the customer has. And then they will compare it based on their data set of previous customers. They might have a data set with your thousands or tens of thousands or millions of customers in the past and take a look at the likelihood of a customer with a similar profile defaulting on the loan. Right, so that's a little bit more information processing that takes place as pattern recognition, but we're able to program computers to do that. But there's certain things, at least as of now, that remains human work. Rules that cannot be articulated. And if the information necessary cannot be obtained. An example would be writing a convincing legal brief. Let's say that there is... Um, Somebody that you suspect committed a crime and you suspect that this person broke into a house, perhaps, at midnight, ran it, and I don't know, stole some food from the fridge or something like that, right? So you, it's your job to go out and try to find that information to connect all the pieces of the dots together based on the evidence that is out there. And this is not something that the computers are able to do just yet. Moving furniture into a third floor apartment, why can't we get a computer to move furniture into a third floor apartment? What do you think the computer is gonna do? What do you think the reason behind why we can't get a computer to do that? Yes? I mean, it's like a lot of obstacles, like there's stairs that could be like a unique set of stairs that so you said it's complex and it's unique. So it's not routine. It's not routine. So it's not something that we can easily program a robot to do. So those are the kinds of jobs that are going to continue to be human work. 
So there's five types of workplace tasks. The two tasks that are listed in this slide shows us the tasks that can very easily be replaced by computers that can be outsourced. The first are routine manual tasks. These are physical tasks that can be described using deductive or inductive rules, such as inserting windshields on automobile bodies. That's pretty easy to program a computer to do it. As you know, you do have to be careful about the placement of the car, the placement of the robot, the placement of all these parts, but it's pretty easy once everything is in place to program a computer to, to, uh, to conduct this task. These tasks can be performed very precisely by computers because it's these repetitive movements that's, that's being repeated over and over again. And these are the tasks that are, you know, have been computerized or have been outsourced. And then we have those routine cognitive tasks. These are mental tasks that are well described by deductive or inductive rules. For example, accepting bank deposits. In the past, you used to have to line up at the bank. You, have, you used to have to give the teller your cash or a check. And then the teller would enter it into your bank account, type in the amount of money that you're going to be depositing, and then add it up based on the balance that you have in your account and give you a deposit slip. Today, you just go to an ATM, or you can even do it on your phone. Anyone have the mobile app on their phone? You can just scan the computer, you know. So this is a pretty routine cognitive task that we can very easily program computers to do or that can also be outsourced to other countries. Now, there's three types of tasks, though, that as of now, computers are unable to do. The first is solving an unstructured problem. We call these non-routine analytical tasks, problems that lack rules-based solutions. An example is a plumber fixing a complicated plumbing problem in an old house. And yes, it's possible that the plumber might watch some YouTube videos. It's possible that the plumber might go online and use the technology as a complement. But the plumber still needs to put all this information together to try to solve this new problem that, has, you know, that does not have a pre-existing solution. So in this example, computers cannot replace human work in these tasks. But they do complement human work by making information more readily available such as, you know, when the plumber uses the internet to find a source or to find some videos as to what the plumber and what they think might be an issue with the plumbing in the house. The other job, other type of task, other type of skills that cannot be easily replaced by computers is working with new information. And you could think about these as non-routine interpersonal skills where you're acquiring new information and you're making sense of this new information and you're using this new information either for problem solving or for communicating to others. An example could be what I'm doing today, perhaps. An economics professor explaining the evolution of skills required for jobs. So I had to take all that information that was out there, put it together, and come up with new information based on um, based on existing information to help me understand what's going on in our economy with respect to the jobs, 
the change in the labor markets and the types of skills that have been required in our economy. So this is another example that where we do still need that cognitive thinking skills and the flexibility skills that human brains have that computers don't have. And non-routine manual tasks, as you mentioned before, moving furniture up the third floor of an apartment. These are physical tasks that cannot be well described in rules because they require optical recognition and fine muscle control, and they're difficult to program. And that's why you see that increase in healthcare in the healthcare sector, because home healthcare workers, right, uh, many of them are conducting these non-routine manual tasks. They're going to the house, they're taking a look at what the patient needs, they're helping out the patient, it's specific to each patient. And think about the janitor, the janitor as well. The janitor is, is, has a non-routine manual task because the janitor has to go perhaps into the classrooms, into the building, into the bathrooms, take a look at which bathrooms need to be cleaned, try to take a look at what specific issue is in each bathroom stall. So it's not a routine task and it's not a repetitive task, but it's a non-routine task. And for this, computers do not even complement human effort in carrying out these tasks. Rather, we will continue to need humans to be able to do these tasks. In this non-routine manual tasks, computerization should have little effect on the percentage of the workforce that's engaged in these tasks. So in this graph, we can take a look at um, the changing work tasks in the U.S. economy from 1960 to approximately 2009. And it's broken up into those five different types of tasks that I described to you earlier. As you can see, these two over here have been increasing since the 1970s. And what are these two? What kinds of tasks are we seeing that there's been an increased demand in, in the labor market? Yes? The new information and unstructured problems. Working with new information and solving unstructured problems. And which one is this one right here that has been decreasing? Uh, the, the manual tasks? Um, and the routine cognitive tasks? Yeah. We see the routine manual tasks up here. And the routine cognitive tasks, remember those are like TurboTax and so on, that have been decreasing over time. Well, we and this line over here represents the non-routine manual tasks. And we continue to see jobs that require these types of skills. So what we've seen is that jobs that require routine cognitive and routine manual tasks are being eliminated in our country. And the future of human work in the U.S. economy, based on the changes that we have seen in the past, we can predict that it will be within these three types of jobs. Non-routine manual tasks, like moving furniture. So many of these tasks are low-skilled jobs, uh, solving unstructured problems, such as the car repair and the plumber, working with 
new information, determining a customer's internet problem, calling up, you know, when a customer calls up cable TV, for example, or, you know, their internet provider and tells them that their internet is not working, then you have to get information from them to try to figure out what's going on and to try to diagnose the problem accurately. So we're, we, we do anticipate that these are the three types of tasks or the three types of skills that we would need moving into the future based on how we've seen the skill sets that are required in jobs in the labor market changing over time. So let's think about whether robots are taking over the world now. How do we feel about it now? So how many of you think that robots are going to take over all jobs? There's going to be no jobs for you. None of you now? Oh, wow. We went from 100% to 0% in the classroom. <laughs> that must have been pretty convincing, seeing all the data out there and seeing all the information. So um, let's think about these five task categories. And I want you to help me. I want you to help me classify these tasks into the specific task categories. Remember, solving unstructured problems, working with new information, routine cognitive tasks, routine manual tasks, and non-routine manual tasks. The first two are the ones that are going to be growing, right? The SUP and the WNI. And so it's the last one, the non-routine manual tasks. And then the other two are going to be shrinking, the RCT and the RMT. Safely driving a truck through downtown Boston. I can't even drive my car through downtown Boston. But what do you think? Safely driving a truck through downtown Boston, yes? I would say it's a non-routine manual task. You would say it's a non-routine manual task? Why? Because um, like things like traffic differ and, like I don't know, there could be crazy drivers sometimes. So it's not the same every time, but it is like you're kind of doing the same thing general thing each time and it is manual because you have to be sitting behind the wheel and driving and paying attention and all that but there could be a kid running across the street or you know there could be something yeah. that you know we, we're unable to program the computer to do it's very different from driving on the highway driving on the interstate at 70 miles an hour on a straight road or something like that right so yes i agree with you a doctor diagnosing an illness with strange symptoms you go to the doctor, you're like, I have a boil, and well, which one do you think that is? Um, I think it's working with new information, because you can't identify the symptoms at a moment, so you kind of are given the new information. So it could be working with new information, but what else do you think it could be? What if the, you know, the doctor might have a computer that the doctor might use to look up, which, you know, nowadays when you do go see your doctor and you have an issue, you know, they do try to look it up. And let's say you have a boil, they put in boil. Let's say you did this at home. I have a boil. Then you look at all this stuff and you're like, oh my gosh, I have cancer. But you know, that's not it, right? And that's why we still need a doctor who has those skills and those experience to diagnose you properly. So what else do you think it could be? Let's assume that, you know, that information is out there, yes. Um, it could be the routine cognitive tasks. Hmm. It could be Maybe. a routine cognitive task. But I like to argue that it might actually be solving an unstructured problem. Why would I say that it might be solving an unstructured problem? Yes. Because if it is strange, strange symptoms, it might 
lack like a concrete definite solution it might be something kind of new that you'll have to deduce just from that yeah so it could be similar to uh, the plumber who was trying to solve that unstructured problem wasn't really sure what was going on but looks things up on the internet anyway so yeah how about calculating tax liabilities from information about earnings expenditure and family composition Routine cognitive task? Oh. Do we agree with her? Yes. Okay. How about a mechanic repairing an automobile problem not described in the factory manual? This one's a little tricky. I will probably plug this under solving an unstructured problem, too. Because, you know, when there's a problem with the car, there are these computers right now that you can, you know, that you can put the car through that can diagnose certain things. But at the same time, there's certain things that the computer is unable to diagnose. So I would, I would call this an unstructured problem. Aha, uh -huh, how about this? A manager motivating the people whose work she supervises. Remember communication and all that? Yeah. That will be working with new information. That's where those communication skills are coming in. A lawyer writing a convincing legal brief. I would argue solving an unstructured problem probably as well. So um, an engineer describing why a new design for a video streaming service is an advance over previous designs. She has something for us. Uh, working with new information. Working with new information. Why did you choose that option? Um, because they have to like communicate the new information about like the streaming service, which is like more like cognitive and non-routine, and like analyzing the new information to like yeah communicate it. Perfect. Thank you. <laughs> Assembling book orders in an Amazon warehouse. Yeah. I feel like that's a routine manual. Yeah, that's a pretty routine manual task. A chef creating a new dish from ingredients that are fresh in the market that morning. The chef went out, they bought a bunch of, you know, things that were available in the market, comes back, tries to create a new dish. Now, which one do we think this will be? I will probably still go with solving an unstructured problem. Testing samples of newly fabricated computer chips. Routine manual task. I have a couple more. Counting and packing pills into containers. Routine manual task, thank you. And last but not least, cleaning a building. Non-routine manual task? Non-routine manual task. So, you know, you're starting to get, to get the gist of this right here. So, given that we've spoken about how Certain jobs that require certain skills are going to be growing over time and certain jobs are going to be shrinking. Let's take a look at the occupations with the most projected job growth and I want you to think about all those types of skills that we discussed before. We do expect to see 
employment, and this shows us the employment in 2021 and the projected employment in 2031. And we do expect to see employment in home health and personal care aids increasing, cooks and restaurants increasing. So home health and personal care aids, what, what kinds of tasks are these, are they doing? Someone is ill, right? Unable to make it to from the bed to the wheelchair. So you have to lift them up and help them out, yeah. There's some uh, like non-routine manual tasks, but also the solving uh, structural problems as well. Yeah, so there's a lot of non-routine manual tasks here involved, and also some of the solving on structure problems. They're also involved right here, like with the personal care aids. Uh, cooks and restaurants, as I mentioned before, that's um, solving unstructured problems. Software developers coming up with new things, right? Um, fast food counter workers, general and operations managers, waiters and waitresses. So you're going to see that a lot of these skills are needed in these positions. Financial managers, medical assistants, it goes on and on. Maids and housekeeping cleaners. So I want you to understand that it's not just the very high-skilled jobs that we're going to see an increase in employment for. But there's also these low-skilled jobs that cannot be replaced by computers and cannot be outsourced that we will continue to see a, a demand for. And this graph right here just shows us the median annual earnings of full-time year-round workers from 25 to 34 by educational attainment. And what's interesting is we do see that there is definitely a premium for education as in those with more education and a higher level of education to make more income. The uh, top line over here shows you the um, median annual earnings of those with a master's degree or higher, the second to top bachelor's degree, the third to top associate's degree, and then we have some college no degree and so on. Now we do see that wage gap between the two, but we do see how there's also going to be an, we see how recently there's been an increase in the demand for those with an associate's degree. Does anyone know what an associate's degree is? Yeah. Two-year degree, right? It's a two-year degree. And a lot of these two-year degrees equip people with technical skills. For example, maybe a dental hygienist or, you know, web developer or, you know, it could be a community college degree as well. And these kinds of jobs are also still, you know, we need people with these types of skills, basic technical knowledge. So a couple of things that we can talk about moving into the future is skills for the future. We do see a new economic normal. We've seen structural economic changes brought by globalization and technological progress. And there's a growth in both high-skilled and low-skilled jobs. However, we do see a shrinking middle class. And, you know, this has been because of the structural change that we've been seeing in our economy and how, you know, there's been a shift in the types of jobs and the types of skills that are required in our economy today. So I want you to remember, though, that a growing economy is always making transitions. Think about the Industrial Revolution and think about the types of jobs that were available before the Industrial 
revolution. Let's think about some agricultural jobs. Farming, for example. You want it to plow the land. You might use a horse or a donkey to pull the plow. And you want to fertilize your crops. You would either go out and fertilize it yourself or use some people and use some labor to fertilize the crops. But once machines were invented, we did see a shift and a change in the types of jobs in our economy as well. We want to fertilize our crops now. Just fly, you know, a plane with fertilizer. We don't need as much labor anymore to be working in the farms. So this is just to show you that what we're going through right now, we have gone through before in the past. We have seen such a shift like this during the Industrial Revolution. There was a transition towards new production and new manufacturing processes. It began around 1750 in England and it spread worldwide. And this transition lasted about 100 years. And during this transition, there was also a change and a shift in labor markets and the types of jobs that were available. So let's think about what we've been seeing recently. Something similar, I would like to argue, with the computer revolution. So with the computer revolution, in about the 1960s or so, we started using computers in businesses and communications. Personal computers, we started using at home in the 1980s or so. The internet, around the 1990s, we all were becoming really familiar with the internet. And then the modern mobile phones that we have today in the 1990s and in the 2000s. So this is all new technology that hasn't existed before. And with the computer revolution, we are seeing that the types of uh, jobs are changing in the past. Another example will be secretarial work. You needed a letter to be written out. You have your secretary write a letter for you. Today, you have computer technology. It's so much easier. You just hit on the computer, open up one of your programs, and type your own letter in. So the computer revolution that started about the 1960s to 1980s could also last 100 years if I were to predict based on the past, and it's just shifting and changing the structure of our economy and the types of jobs and the types of skills that are necessary in our economy. Some of the skills can be automated by technology, those routine skills, manual tasks such as assembly line and routine cognitive tasks such as accounting. And human work in the future will center around these three kinds of work, solving unstructured problems, working with new information, and carrying out non-routine manual tasks. And this is part of a natural transition that a growing economy goes through. Every time that we have you know, a technological change such as this, it does have a structural effect on our economy, and it does have an impact on our economy. That being said, we need to prepare our labor force with the new types of skills that are needed. Many of the manufacturing workers who have been laid off in the Midwest, the jobs, they might not have the skills necessary to compete in these jobs that are opening up today. So there is a need for us to rethink our education system, 
because the types of skills that we're providing with our students today are not going to be the same types of skills that are going to be needed in the future. So when we think about the skills for the future, it's pretty important for us to refocus our education system to pre prepare young people to do the jobs that computers cannot do. Everybody does need those basic foundational skills, though, that they teach you in school, such as literacy, numeracy, just to be uh, fully functioning citizens of the country. But beyond that, different students will need different learning experiences. Uh, it's not just cookie cutter anymore, because a lot of those cookie cutter routine tasks and jobs that we've trained our workers to do in the past are no longer there. They've all been either outsourced or they've been replaced by computers. So here are some of the skills that are needed for the future, those analytical skills. Critical thinking and problem solving. We spoke about how there's only so much that the computer can do with this. The deep thinking skills should be fostered in school. Communication skills. That's something else that's going to be needed, as you've seen with the change in the types of jobs in our economy and the change in the types of tasks that are required in our economy. Strong interpersonal and character skills to be able to collaborate, to be effectively communicate, because we can find so much information out there today that people couldn't find in the past. Just go do a Google search, right? But the question is, how are we putting that information together and how are we effectively communicating that information to others? That's something that computers are still unable to do. And flexibility, as well as adaptiveness. Something that we can do is, you know, we can come up with new solutions to things that didn't exist before. We can adapt to new environments, and we can adapt to unfamiliar, unfamiliar situations. And we need to be able to make sure that we're training our students to be successful in the future job markets by providing them with these skills that are necessary. As I mentioned before, it's not about everybody just going to college and getting a master's degree and getting you know, a, a really high level of education because those kinds of jobs, yes, are necessary. Those kinds of jobs are growing, but we also have other types of jobs in our economy as well, as I mentioned, those you know, low-skilled jobs. And what's going to eventually happen in the labor market, hopefully, because what's been happening recently is we've seen increases in inequalities with you know, the middle-class jobs being eliminated. And a lot of the increase in inequality that we have seen has been due to these you know, structural changes that we've seen in our economy. But I also want you to think about the difference between the United States and maybe some of those European countries. They've seen similar structural changes. They've seen, I know, similar um, increases in technology, but they haven't seen the increases in the level of inequality that we've seen in our country. So what do you think is something else that might differ or something else that we could tackle other than just providing our students the skills that they might need in the future? to be successful in the new types of labor markets? What is something else that you could think about that might help us with this problem that we've seen with increasing inequalities in our country?
So the types of jobs, high skill, low skills, right? What do you need to get one of those high skill jobs? What are you all here for? Yeah, education. So I want you to think about the lines of that. Access to educational technology, access to educational resources, and just access to um, good quality education. So, you know, when we think about it, there is a need for us to be able to expand the access to education. And we also have to, of course, also be changing the types of skills that we're providing to our students. So a lot of it is centered within the education system. Teachers today, if they're continuing to teach the same way that they did in the past, they're not, they're not providing our students with the skills that are necessary to compete in the new types of labor market. So in addition to being able to teach and provide students with the skills that are necessary to compete in the new types of labor market, we also need to make sure that there is you know, access to education provided as well. Do you all have any questions or Anything that you would like to talk about? I did this. This goes back to like uh, some of the first slides. But why was uh, education or private education and health services like grouped together in that one uh, in that one slide? That's a really good question. I'm really not sure why it was grouped together in the one slide. It was just something that I pulled out from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and they have those sectors grouped together. But it would be nice to be able to see that sector separate uh, so we could investigate more as to what's been happening within that sector. And I would suspect that a lot of it has to do with the healthcare, with what's going on with the healthcare sector. But the education sector, too, you know, has, the private education sector, too, has been growing. As well, when you think about today, we have so many more people, a larger percentage of our population in college today than in the past. Any other questions? Thank you. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. If you're interested in hearing more history, check out Season 2 of the Presidential Recordings podcast. The second season focuses on taped conversations between President Richard Nixon on topics ranging from the Watergate scandal to his nominees for the Supreme Court. The Presidential Recordings Podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm.